So you play guitar? Uh, I tried to learn for a while, but I was, didn't get the dopamine that I needed. <laughs> <laughs> Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Banana milk, that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I should have, yeah, used artificial dopamine. Yeah, I, 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 I did Maybe some of that's that. What, yeah. <laughs> that's what Eric Clapton is, right? This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with a, a Convergent Science Network podcast with my colleague uh, Tony Prescott. And we're talking with Greg Rickenzone, who was speaking today at the BCBT Summer School 2015 here in Barcelona on something that I was told as a student didn't exist, which was adult cortical plasticity. So, Greg, why why did you go over that topic? What's important about that question? Well, um, <clears throat> the part of the reason why I did it this that I talked about this, which I don't usually talk about when I when I give seminars, is that Leah specifically asked me to. And she reasoned that um, Back in the days when we were graduate students, it was, as you said, impossible and it didn't occur. And it was a real revolution in the way that we thought about how the cerebral cortex worked. And uh, it's been so well accepted at this point that students today just kind of take it for granted and don't really get ever taught kind of the classic papers and studies that were done in order to demonstrate it to the point where we all know you know, mm-hmm. believe it. So that was my main motivation today. Mm-hmm. And plus, you know, it's ex- eight years of my life working on that thing. So it's kind of nice to revisit it and, and um, still see some enthusiasm about that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. But now, how do you explain the transition uh, historically? That's a good question, too. It seemed, you know, as I was going through the beginning of my talk that back in the 1800s, everybody knew that it had to exist and it was trivial. And then for some reason, since nobody had been able to really demonstrate how uh, the brain changed when you actually did learn something, and then Hubel and Weasel said, look, it stops changing after a certain period in development, which made perfect sense, it just got kind of lost in that shuffle. And so it took a 10-year hiatus, really, where people just kind of thought critical period, critical period, critical period, and, and nothing about... Uh, wait a minute, how did I just learn about this? As I'm an adult, my brain had to have changed somehow, right, for me to learn this, but it couldn't have, but it just, you know, I have no idea why people got stuck on that. Mm-hmm. And coming from Mersnick's lab, where he never considered that as a, you know, a serious proposition for learning, I would never got caught up in that mindset, right? So I, I always uh, I always believe your mentor. That's always important, right? <laughs> Well, I recommend the exactly the opposite to my students. <laughs> <laughs> but now, but then I add to that, disagree with them, but give a better alternative. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But now, indeed, for you, the, the, this history starts with uh, with Mike Mertzenich and John Kass, right? Very much, right? So, so what what was the key insight you think that brought them? to that point of reviving these ideas about adult plasticity in the cortex? Well, I've talked to both of them about this a number of times, and because it was remarkable, it was a stretch, and it was a struggle, because many people did not want to believe those early papers, this, the digit amputation paper and the median nerve section, they wanted to think of unmasking and all these other things. But um, they're both pretty passionate scientists, and they both thought that it just made more sense that it worked that way, right? And I think they just believed Right, and and Mike would say that all the time, that he just kind of believed that it had to be something like that, and he just wanted to show how it was done. And so, those early studies I thought were brilliant in the sense that uh, they weren't supposed to work, and every time they did something, they learned something new, and so it was a really exciting time for everybody in those labs to be doing those kinds of experiments. So, can you describe one of these sort of early experiments that that really brought the message home? Right. Well, for me. Um, the one that, that actually uh, solidified in my mind what happened is when uh, you look at the map of the hand in area 3B in a monkey, which is really precise and elegant, and each finger is represented uh, very cleanly and distinctly, and from you know the wrist to the fingertips, it's all very topographic, right? And then um, the critical period genetic model would say that if you lost a finger, then that part of the brain just wouldn't have anything to respond to anymore, right? And what they did was 
ask the question, is that really what happens? And so um, what they found was that, indeed, the neurons that used to respond to the missing finger now responded to the other ones. And another key insight that I didn't talk about today that really made, um, made them think about it differently is that it wasn't simply the case that the old map was there and then some new things happened also. The whole map looked like a four-fingered monkey. So there was the same kind of overlap and the same progression and the same topography, but just with the missing finger. And so that gave them the insights that what must be happening is that the receptive field of a particular neuron has to be dynamic. It has to be able to change over a very short time course, right? Probably, you know, in a dramatic thing like this over the course of two months, but probably does it over the course of several days, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was something in there that these neurons are always actively changing the weights of their synapses to see what parts of the skin that they should represent relative to what all their neighboring neurons are representing, right? Mm -hmm. So you just, and that's how you keep the topography. Mm -hmm. Now, it was really lucky they did that in Area 3B because if you look at the visual cortex that um, Charlie Gilbert did, it doesn't work that way. It, it all, they all stack up, right? And so it's not this ordered topography that you see in the somatosensory cortex. In the auditory cortex, if you do a cochlear lesion, um, essentially what happens is the cells that used to respond to the now lesion frequencies respond to what the, the one that was spared, the edge of the lesion. So all three of them are very different, and so it was really fortunate that they did the 3B study because it made the most sense, right, at the time. In, but also in retrospect, it was the most effective choice. Yeah, in retrospect, mm -hmm. I don't, mm -hmm. they didn't know the, about the other two, right? Those yeah. came subsequently, so exactly. they lucked out, essentially. Right? But now did... When these amputation studies were done with, with, with these results, um, was, what was the resistance that, that you faced in the, in the community? Yeah, so personally, fortunately, I didn't face any of that. So uh, Mike was a champion. He would uh, accept anybody's invitation to go out and talk to their research group and give a spiel and then spend the next half hour defending it because people said, no, no, you can't change the brain like that. It's just unmasking or you just, you know, it's just something that's not um, in any way related to any sort of perceptual differences, right? And um, I didn't see him a whole lot as a graduate student because he seemed to be gone all the time, going and just going out there and pitching a story and defending it you know, the way that only he can do. And um, eventually... People came around, I guess. I mean, when the, the accumulation of evidence, if he had stopped after the digital amputation, it would have been all over. That would have been the end of it, right? But we kept going and going and going. Then other people get on board, too, and start doing these experiments. And it's like, look, it always changes, right? So it must be real, right? So what is the uh, now <coughs> consensus? So, because obviously we have a revised view of plasticity. This battle is being won, but also the notion of critical periods is still there. You know, sure. we've talked about it uh, several times in the last week. W what would you see as the consensus now about the the amount of adult plasticity and how that compares to plasticity uh, in infancy? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that there's critical periods and the lid sutures do cause ocular dominance column shifts and all these kinds of things. So that's absolutely certain, right? Um, the way I think the field is coming to a consensus is you have these developmental time points where you can do largely anatomical differences, right, but not necessarily. And then once all those things are over with, you're left with um, the adult plasticity, which is how you change the weights of your synapses and how you mess with inhibition and things like that. And that is what's um, Basically, the difference between critical periods and adult plasticity is in adult plasticity, you don't expect much of any changes in the underlying anatomy. So right. there's fundamentally different mechanisms. Yeah, so it's fundamentally different. And they're both working independently, essentially. Mm. Yeah. So, so, another, so now we look really at changing the, uh, the periphery. We remove a finger or... You, you suture two fingers together, so you make a four-fingered monkey, and then you see these changes in, in the somatosensory presentation of the body, as you described. Um, but now, how far do these changes percolate into the system? Like, for instance, if I have a somatosensory change due to, these, to this, this change of my hand, is it matched also to changes in, let's say, primary motor cortex, premotor cortex? How far do these changes really percolate down into the system? You know, that is an, a question that, to my knowledge, hasn't ever been looked at 
uh, strongly. So uh, I know that Randy Nudo did a whole series of experiments where he had the monkeys do different sorts of uh, motor tasks, and then you look at the motor cortex, and there's predictable kinds of changes that would associate with that. Um, and, and so clearly, any time you're interconnected uh, networks like 3B and, and 3A and M1, you're going to see these changes percolate at least to the extent that they need to be, right? So I imagine that if I looked in the motor cortex of those same animals that um, I studied, I would see all kinds of things that were related to the reach and to the release and all these things because they were doing that and that was very important to them too, right? So is that because of the somatosensory changes? Probably not as much as it is to the actual motor movement, but they're going to work together. It's a, mm -hmm. But auditory cortex didn't change, even though they heard this stuff, right? So there's some limit to how much it goes. And it's probably just to what's really primarily task-related. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, Because it was sort of the next step in your experiments, right? That, so now we, we first we change the periphery. You could say, okay, uh, if you want uh, a rather strong perturbation, so we have a reorganization of the map. But then you start to look really at, at the learning component of this by, by engineering... The, uh, a task where you provide haptic feedback or tactile feedback to the to the monkey, um, and then trying to see what kind of changes you would then get in in uh, the sensory cortex. So, um, what kind of changes did, did you get there in that experiment? The changes in the somatosensory. Yeah. Okay. So the monkeys were trained to feel a vibration on one small part of their finger starting at 20 hertz and to detect when it went faster in a subsequent um, presentation. So we saw a great deal of changes, some of which were related to the behavior and many of which were not. Okay, so one thing that wasn't related to the behavior, as far as we could tell, was the size of the receptive fields got bigger. And the thinking at the time then was that, well, that's because it's not, it's a pretty big stimulus. It, it vibrated a lot of skin, and so everything is being synchronously activated by this 20 hertz stimulus. And that's a consequence of the way, the mechanisms by which uh, you change your weights, right? <clears throat> Another thing that happened with there, there was a expansion of the representation of that skin. And that was correlated with the ability of the monkey to do the task, but um, not super well. And if that had been the end of the day, I would have been perfectly happy with it because that's what I was looking for, a change in the map related in some way to the change in the behavior. The main thing that was related to the behavior was the ability of the neurons to follow the, each individual cycle of that 20 hertz or 21 or 24 hertz stimulus. And um, what was interesting to me, so the, the two changes that really made the big difference was for um, the brain, when, when the skin was stimulated on the finger that was being trained, there was a lot more neurons that responded in that way to each cycle of the stimulus. <clears throat> but every individual neuron that did respond that way responded about as well as ones that did the untrained skin. Okay, so if you did something, if you did some sort of measurement of the fidelity of the response relative to the stimulus itself, there was no difference between trained and untrained. And um, so that would mean, well, the, the signal is just louder because there's more neurons doing it. But it was more than that. What happened that really made the difference was um, for the untrained skin or normal skin, if you will, um, the way that the timing of the response to each cycle of the stimulus varied uh, quite a bit between individual neurons. Okay, so that would make kind of a, if you did all the population, you have a broad tuning function. And the trained monkeys, they all lined up with each other. Okay, so the temporal fidelity across the population was enhanced. So it was a louder signal, it was a better signal. Okay, so it got, it got much tighter, which allowed the monkey, I'm interpreting, to be better able to tell the difference between 20 and 22 hertz because there was less slop, less variability, and it was a much cleaner, tighter signal. Okay. But you would say, is that, is that expressing something like what fires together, wires together? Like I'm driving these neurons simultaneously, they fire simultaneously, this drives local plasticity, they get coupled more tightly together, and as a result, their response becomes sharper uh, in time. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But then the other thing you showed is all this elongation of these, these receptive fields. Right. That's the thing that didn't make any sense to me. Why, why would these receptive fields get so much larger in terms of their sensitivity along the, the finger? Along the finger. Yeah. yeah, so when uh, the monkey has his hands on the apparatus and the thing comes up and starts to vibrate, it vibrated quite a bit, right? And so it wasn't the same as when you're doing the mapping experiment and you're just barely touching the skin. It's actually a pretty significant stimulus. And I felt it. I wanted to see what it felt like. And uh, it felt pretty big, 
right? So it was it was as though, even though the probe was kind of small, since it was moving so much, it was moving a lot of skin, almost the whole phalanx. And I think that's wires, fires together, wires together is the same kind of thing. You're moving all the skin together at once, right? right? And there was no penalty for having a big receptive field, mm -hmm. right? I would, I would guess that if I had two probes and I asked the monkey to tell me, am I just doing one or two, then they would get small. But, but would it, it needs more than fires together, wires together, because there's a, an effective reinforcement here. That you need the reinforcement. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. They, have to, they have to know that they're doing it right. And it's oh, oh, this making this discrimination gets you the peanut, whatever you right. want. Right, exactly. Yeah, so this is a more complicated system than, than simply heavy and learning. You know, if you experience something a lot, then through heavy and learning, you might refine your receptors. But if, right. if it's important for a reward, then that's going to be... I think, as you've shown, much bigger effect. Much bigger effect. So if yeah. you do exactly the same stimulation, but the monkey listens to the sounds instead, then you don't see the big yeah. receptive fields and the big area and the tighter tuning. So this, this is this is not heavy in then, surely. Mm -hmm. it's a, uh, or at least it's a heavy in role that's being modulated. Well, that's the question, right? Yeah. Is it just driven by the statistics of the input? Or does it depend on an additional neuromodulatory signal that says, ah, this is really great, we should get it again? Yeah, I think it's the latter. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, but now the other thing you saw is also in terms of the response latency, there were changes, right? The neurons seem, also seem to be responding earlier to the to the uh, the stimulus. They were earlier, than, yeah. Than the control condition. Mm -hmm. So how, how would you account for that effect? You know, that's a really good question too. Why would you, why would you get, I mean, it's clear to see why you would get sharper. Right, but why would you get sharper and earlier too? And um, I have no really good answer for that. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's somehow as though these early responses are the ones that the monkey was using and pulling the other neurons towards the, the shorter latency. Okay, right? but it was a discrimination task that the, that the monkey had to perform. Right, right. So uh, was sort of you 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 changed you changed the stimulation frequency, and that the monkey had to say, ah, I detected that. Right. If it was correct, it got a reward. Right. Right. Um, so how f how frequent were these changes in frequency? So the way we decided to do it is the the first one was always twenty hertz. If I remember correctly, the second one was always twenty hertz, and then it could change on the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh, with equal probability. Right. So in average, there was five ish of these six hundred millisecond duration. So we were thinking at the time that we had to do a lot of stimulation because the Jenkins experiment had millions of stimuli and saw big changes. So I was afraid that if you didn't do quite so many, right, if you did just, you know, one and then another one, uh, you know, two choice, right, then that wouldn't necessarily do it. I think now that that would have worked and probably would have saved me a lot of time. Mm -hmm. But Right. <laughs> so it means well, looking across these two experiments, you see that differentiation leads to changes in the map that, that, that probably have a lot to do just with the input statistics to the map because this is task not, this is not task dependent in any way. Right. So while on, when we start to bring in a task, and it's really very much also the reward or the task contingency, the relation to reward or punishment, that would impose further changes to the map. You, you agree with that interpretation? There are yes. two learning mechanisms at work. Okay, but now, how stable would that learning be? Like, if, for instance, if... Uh, what we already saw with these these peripheral changes, like fusing two fingers and then disconnecting them, actually, uh, the map follows that manipulation, but it might do it more slowly, as it might follow, let's say, the task contingency in the, in, in the the stimulation experiment you describe, uh -huh. right? So, what is sort of the the characteristic time constants of these two learning processes? Yeah, that's something that um, I never address specifically, but it's obviously a, a critical component, mostly because the idea, of course, is that you can use this for learning for good, for rehabilitation and all these kinds of things, and how long does it take to, to do this? And uh, once you do change, do you ever want to change back, or can you change back, or do you need to change back? And um, so I think that's going to be really largely task-dependent, and really largely how much neuromodulator can you get in there based on uh, you know, pharmaceutical or just the desire to do it or the importance of the stimulus to you, et cetera. So um, my guess is that it will probably take days or weeks or months depending on all those different kinds mm -hmm. of things. 
Right. Okay, but but in case of the of the, the differentiation or the amputation experiment, um, how much time does it take for that map to stabilize? Yeah, unknown. Okay. okay. So uh, those early experiments, they also did uh, two-digit amputations, and they waited two months or three months or whatever. And what they found there was that there would be a silent zone. Mm -hmm. So the two-digit amputation deafferented too big of a portion of the cortex for the afferents to actually reach each mm -hmm. other. Then Ted Jones and Tim Pons looked at the Silver Spring monkeys a decade or two later that had been... Uh, had dorsal rhizotomies done to them 15 or 20 years beforehand, and they saw complete recovery, mm -hmm. right, in the map. And that was correlated with changes in anatomical distributions as well, all the way from the cuneate and the thalamus up to the cortex. So right. if you wait long enough, presumably, that, that was a huge deaffrontation. That's the whole mm -hmm. arm, right? Yeah. And they still saw centimeters of change mm -hmm. as opposed to, I think the early studies were something like five or 600 microns. If you got beyond that, you couldn't couldn't recover mm. or you couldn't change your map. But, right. you know, you only wait two months, right? If you're mm. not going to really wait 10 years, mm. there's that's a hard grant to, to get in the United States. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sort of the task-dependent mm. change under the influence of neuromodulation can go relatively rapid, right? Right. Months, yeah. Day, well, no, days uh, or weeks, yeah. No, with a task-specific change, certainly if you go into the middle of conditioning, you might see map changes in, in dozens of trials, no? Might oh, yeah, really sure. Quickly. Norm Weinberger right. has done that for decades. Exactly. He, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, then these amputation experiments show that the overall, let's say, topological organization of the map depends on the periphery. It might be a much slower process that might require, let's say, throwing out new processes, building new connections, and so on. Would, would you see it like this? That the, the, the amputation, the, the, the processes underlying the reorganization after amputation are slow, and the task-specific ones, depending on neuromodulation, are fast, or you wouldn't really see it in those simple I would terms. see that's probably, that's probably accurate, because when you think about a small uh, deaffrontation, mm -hmm. right, the consequences of that to the animal are, are uh, not as dire as you have to do this task in order to get your food, right? So, so how much neuromodulation would there be in, in a situation where you have a digit amputation? It's probably not nearly as much. So in that sense, it would go much slower because the, the need for it to go faster is just not there. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned um, in the talk, you were talking about this is requiring attention. Uh, and uh, so what's interesting is attention doesn't necessarily imply reinforcement. It implies some maybe more intrinsic motivation to attend. I guess you're not directly getting at it in this task. But uh, for instance, in the case of uh, a person who's learning some motor skill, their reinforcement might be, you might have to wait a long time for it, but uh, you're intrinsically motivated. So that right. so we don't necessarily have to think about, uh, uh, well, maybe we do want to think about a person neuromodulator, but the, the, the uh, system that's delivering this could be some really co quite complex uh, system around intrinsic motivation signals rather than you know, oh, absolutely. obvious rewards. Right, so um, imagine learning to play a guitar right which is difficult to do i can say from personal experience and the motivation is to sound good yeah. right and and that's very esoteric right so now your auditory cortex is deciding how much attention in a modulator your motor system is going to get and your tactile system based on you know your desire whatever that is to to sound like you're not a hack right <laughs> to sound good so yeah. And you don't necessarily know what the task is. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, you don't know what you need to do to sound good. You're exploring the space. It's a exactly. lot of trial and error. Right. But uh, I guess you're getting at the, the basis for that here. You know, so. Right, right. But do we really need to have an attentional interpretation of this? I mean, if you just get this, the, the banana uh, chow, whatever you give these, these animals as a reward, um, driving in neuromodulators like dopamine, uh, which uh, modulates plasticity in, in the cortex, leading to this reorganization, do we need to say, oh, and we paid attention to it? Do we really need that interpretation? It's kind of not right. just be so, task contingency. It could be task contingency. It could be you know, reward, mm -hmm. uh, dopamine. It could be norepinephrine. It could be all kinds of different mm -hmm. things. So, so to use the word attention, uh, as I did in my talk, was a, a pretty loose interpretation of the people who'd study attention, right? right. So they, they, would, they would shy away from mm -hmm. that necessarily being, 
being right. the, the key, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of throw the word out there just because uh, right after I left uh, Mike's lab, Mike Kilgard came and he essentially did the auditory version of the experiments in rats. And instead of training them, he just electrically stimulated the basal forebrain and got all the same effects. Right, right? exactly. <clears throat> so, and there was no attention there, mm -hmm. right? So, so. Right. But yeah. that was uh, auditory, in auditory conditioning, right? Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, so he dumps a bunch of acetylcholine on the cortex, right, when the sounds are playing and the maps change mm -hmm. like crazy. Right, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then, so after these experiments on, on that really demonstrate, that really contributed significantly to demonstrating that we have adult plasticity in the cortex and to show also some of its organizing principles, in particular the role of neuromodulators, I think, and, and let's say input statistics on, on how these maps are organized. Um, what are the boundaries on that process, though? I mean, would you be able, if I would give you just enough time and monkeys and, and training equipment, could you just easily retrain the auditory cortex into a visual cortex and make it as large or small as you wanted it to be? In adults. Yeah. Take normal adults and then see how you can mm -hmm. manipulate that. Yeah, so we, we heard um, at the, a couple of days ago in the seminar that uh, you blindfold a person and their visual cortex will start helping them learn Braille, right? So in that sense... You, you know, or to echolocate. Or to echolocate, mm -hmm. exactly. So in that sense, you, you know, all bets are off. Mm -hmm. it, it sounded like from that limited amount of data, right? But where would you start? When we're going to make an echolocating monkey, where would you start? How would you do this most efficiently? <laughs> uh, probably be easier to teach him to read Braille than to echolocate, <laughs> at least from the training point of view. And then uh, if... If you were going to do that, if you deprived a bunch of cortex of its normal input, then it would and and demanded that it use its hands, you know, efficiently well, and its visual cortex, for example, is not doing much of anything. I think it would take uh, you know days to weeks to start getting that activated without do, not doing the you know mm -hmm. neonatal manipulations that you can do to get all this rewiring that Margonka showed a long time ago. Right. So yeah, you know. In 1992, when those publications came out, I'd say, well, that's never going to happen because there's no substrate for that, right? It's just not going to work. It's all cortical and it's all done, right? Mm -hmm. Today, it's, we know much, much more about it, and so it is possible to do these kinds of things. And exactly how that's done is still not entirely clear, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it happens. So, right. so you, can, you can change these things. Yeah. So, so the second part of the talk, you, you focused on sound localization, right? So we moved sort of to different preparation, we moved also to a different kind of task. Right. So so why does sound localization help you to understand this issue of adult plasticity? Right, so um, I started doing those sound localization experiments when I became an assistant professor, mm -hmm. at least five or more years ago. And uh, really my motivation at that time was to, um, is to learn how the brain um, what is it about the brain that allows us to perceive complicated things? Right? And the plasticity part of my life, it seemed to me, was pretty much over by then. So I, I, I came, I conquered, I left, right? And I wanted to make a name for myself independent of, of Mike Mersnick and Bob Wirtz, which is no easy task because these guys are just fantastic scientists, right? And so, uh, like I said in the talk, there was really not much going on in the auditory cortex. And, um, it, and I think it's really, really important, right? So human beings, a lot of people will say, a human being is a visual animal, right? So we have this huge visual cortex, and, and we just like to look at stuff, right? The other argument is that we're really a social animal, right? And what we um, really want to do is talk to each other. That's a, that's a strong motivator in the human brain, right? If you, if, you can't, if you can't talk to other people, usually you go crazy, you really need that sort of social interaction. So in that sense, we have this great auditory system that lets us do things like understand speech. And so in that sense, I thought, well, this is equally, if not more important than, than the visual system, right? So it should get some people studying it. And uh, we have the visual system to compare our studies to. So on the one hand, if you do the same kinds of studies that have been done decades ago in the visual system and the auditory system, it's new. Right? You already had this all sort of figured out, if it works exactly the same way. Right? So my motivation was 
to go ahead and do something that was novel. And what I really wanted to do was understand how complicated perceptions could be formed in the cerebral cortex. So people have said, oh, you were a somatosensory guy, and then you were an auditory guy, and you are a vision guy. I've always been a cortex guy. So I'm a cortical snob, I'll admit it. And I've always been interested in how does the cortex drive perceptions. One way you can do it is you can have plasticity to get better. Another way you can do it is you say, well, how do you do it without a whole bunch of plasticity? How do you do this? And the auditory system and the sound localization system is really nice in my mind because it's not topographic, and I know what it's trying to represent, which is azimuth and elevation. Mm -hmm. So I know exactly what the thing's trying to do, and that will give me some handle on figuring out how it does that. So it not being mo- a topographic was was a motivation you you mentioned also in the talk, right? Um, but it doesn't isn't that a make it life harder for you if if you take something which is not topographic or is the the goal to show that the same principles apply whether there's topography or not? Well, it does make it a lot harder, right? So um, if you're nicely topographic, you can do some really cool experiments like microstimulation or microlesions and things like this, and you can probe the system much more easily. I had tried for a while to do microstimulation of the auditory cortex to see if I could change the percept. Ken Britton is a colleague of mine at the Center for Neuroscience, and he has a long history of microstimulating MT and showing really elegantly that it does perturb the perceptual abilities of the animal. And he loaned me all his stimulation stuff, and it, nothing ever seemed to work. And I think it's likely because you can't just pick one spot like he could in MT with the best direction and set your stimulus up to do that. Instead, you stimulate this 1% of the neurons that are contributing to the percept, and you can never measure that in the, in the noisy you know, thing. So there's a distinct disadvantage to that. So the real motivation was thinking that um, a lot of the brain, a lot of the interesting parts of the brain that we do cognitive things in that we can't really study because we don't know anything about how those cells work, because they're not topographic and it's not an easy label. If we understood how you could do it in the cortex and something that you know is not topographic, then maybe you'd get some insights into how to do other look at other places in the brain. But now the you say you want to understand perception and and complex percepts, and then we would look at localization where. In some sense, you could say, well, all I need, need to do is just know the interval time difference and the attenuation that I get through my pina and my skull, and I have a good estimate of where things are, and I can just delegate this down to my superior colliculus. Right. So, so what's the leverage looking at sound localization? Actually, it is mostly studied looking at the superior colliculus. So mm-hmm. what's the leverage you get looking at that problem at the cortical level? Well, it's because the cortex is necessary for you to report what you to perceive where you've heard the sound from. So for example, you can take a cat and you can put it and train it in a sound booth to go into the middle of the booth, you can play a sound from one of the speakers, it will orient towards the sound and walk towards it and get a treat. You leash in the cerebral cortex, A1 and around it, and then the cat doesn't do that. So the sound comes from the contralesional space, sometimes it will move its pinna, sometimes it will move its head and face the speaker and then it will walk to a random one. And what um, Hugh Hefner interpreted this to me, it happens in monkeys too, he's done this in monkeys, and what he said is there is neural circuitry that tells you where the sound came from, collicular and, and brainstem, et cetera, but you don't have the percept that that's where the sound came. So when you're going to do something like walk toward where the sound was, you really have no conscious percept of where it came from, even if you're looking right at the speaker because you instinctively turned your head toward it. So that means that the target setting is, is missing or the transformation of identifying the target and location into a goal-oriented action is missing or both? At least the latter. Okay. Yeah. So, so but then the, wouldn't you expect the deficit to not so much be affected by areas that are so close to auditory processing but more those that are close to working memory, goal-setting, frontal areas and so on? Well, probably because uh, we see this kind of behavior in all kinds of mammals. You don't have to have a whole big frontal cortex for you to have the show this deficit, mm-hmm. right? So um, uh, Andy King has done a bunch of really elegant studies where he's shown that uh, those simple interpretations from the psychophysics from the 70s and 80s doesn't really hold in ferrets and probably in any real animal. If uh, 
you have long enough stimuli and allow the animal to move its head as was being discussed. And you, then you can lesion A1 and there's not really much of a deficit. Uh, you have to lesion more than just A1 for that to, to not work. What's interesting in his studies that I find r really remarkable is if you lesion A1 in a ferret and then um, he's not able, he, he can overcome you know, this deficit. But then if you plug one ear, a normal ferret will adjust to that and be able to localize fine, but not one with an A1 lesion. Okay, so A1 is necessary for you to learn how to use these new cues, right? And presumably, a place like CL and the macaque monkey is where you're really doing the sound localization, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> and it's not necessarily A1 specific, but it is cortically mediated. Right? Because in that sense, in the macaque brain, you've compared quite a number of areas to see where would you find the specificity to the location right. of, of the sound source. Um, and it was actually surprisingly specific. Only one, one area jumped out that really gave you this, the, the strongest uh, location modulated response, and actually A1 wasn't one of them. Right. So how do you explain that? Well, the thinking is that the st stimulus comes into A1. A1 contains all of the necessary information, and then it projects to CL, and the CL neurons are specific in the way that they interpret that information and they get the nice small receptive fields, which allows then some other area, not CL, to make some sense out of that and give the monkey the percept of where that sound actually came from. So, um, but, but area CL, if that gives you the percept, is then CL talking to another area to, to translate that to a goal-oriented action? Presumably, that's how it works, yeah. Okay, caudal, so, probably mm -hmm. the caudal parabelt is going to be critical. I imagine that if I did my experiments there, I would see very good correlations as well. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, what's the latency of the response in CL? Normally, if you're not old, it's a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And so Joseph Rauschecker did a really nice study uh, quite some time ago, and what he found was that if you lesion A1, the responses in CM, which is its neighbor, uh, to, to tones goes away, but to noise stays. Mm -hmm. So the thinking is that there's both noise and tone information coming from the thalamus and the cortex to CL, and it's getting combined. And if you take it away, the tone information is lost. Okay, right? but now the stimuli you use were largely white noise white bursts. White noise, yeah. Okay, so I could argue then from the perspective of, of a, having an auditory percept, that's rather reduced. White oh, noise as much, right? Yeah. So, so if we now would start to use, let's say, calls of other monkeys mm -hmm. or sounds of predators, would you expect that the result might look different? That you might find more specificity in other areas? More specificity for the different call, for no, example. But no, because or? now we have meaningful sounds. Actually, you use a sound that is not meaningful. Right. Well, it was meaningful in the sense that you had to figure out where it was coming from to oh, get. Oh, you your, got a reward to it as well. You got a reward, yeah. Right. So, so I made, made it meaningful. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so that that might have helped then. That's yeah. okay. You're right. Exactly. So the other the other thing you then um, so now we have we have localization. We we are looking at issues of adult cortical plasticity. Now the famous experiments people would do with let's say the orienting system of the spiritualist, you put prisms. On, on the owl monkey, or, or no, on, owls. On, on owls, sorry, on barn owls, and then and then you can show that sort of the, the maps get dramatically reorganized, also also in adults, still get the orienting responses aligned. Would you expect to see something comparable in, in your monkeys when we start to sort of uh, distort this mapping of sound to location? Would you also see similar remappings in CL? Oh, I predict that you would, mm -hmm. right? As soon as the monkey was able to to do well at localizing it, my, my prediction would be that CL would show changes mm -hmm. that would be really interesting to look at because it's not clear, since there's no topography, you can't really see, oh, these cells changed where their best direction was, mm -hmm. right? You wouldn't be able to see that, but you would see that at the end of the day, they all changed appropriately mm -hmm. for that to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But and now to trigger the goal-oriented movement, do we see something similar as we see in vision? Like in vision, you might go to frontal eye field and then sort of communicate with the colliculus to then set the gaze direction. Would you believe it's a similar pathway that would trigger the orienting response to auditory stimulus and then the, the movement to the source? I would Im imagine that that would be the case, but it might be very much different than that. Why is that? Well, the visual system and the uh, gaze shifts are all dependent on 
what you see is depending on where your gaze is. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the auditory system, that's not quite as much. So you saw the um, psychophysical results for these pretty, you know, fairly not quiet sounds. Didn't really matter where the sound was coming from. You could tell where it was, right? So that would be gaze independent, right? So if you had to orient to the spirit clicklis, um, you know, how exactly, it wouldn't surprise me if that was a little bit or a lot different than the visual system just for that reason, that the, the gaze shifting isn't part mm-hmm. of the sensory input, right? Right. True. But the other thing is also for the auditory stimuli, you might have more ambiguity because the visual scene is in front of you and you deal with it and it's all, the information is out there. Right. Well, in an auditory uh, display, the, the source localization might be more difficult that you really have to make several orienting movements before you really can pinpoint the source. Right. So the, so the amount of error that you will make if you, I didn't show these data, but if you're in a dark you hear a sound, and I ask you to point your head toward the sound. The amount of error you make is considerable. Mm-hmm. Right? So that means it might be more an iterative process. You do several orienting responses before you, you really have, have targeted the source. Right. Would it mean that areas like CL have more of a working memory property than you might find in more vision-oriented uh, cortical it, systems? That's a... That's a good question, and the jury is out on that because the auditory stimuli are a little, quite a bit different than what you see with visual stimuli, and because they're um, they're temporary, you don't have mm-hmm. really a lasting auditory stimulus. Right? It's pretty rare that nature that something just hums for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you look at the rock, the rock's there, and the rock doesn't move, and you see the rock the whole time. Right, right? exactly. As opposed to uh, there's debate, what's an auditory object? Does it even exist or is it an event? Right? And maybe an event is a better way to think about it. So the way I think about it, what's the auditory system in a, in a primate really supposed to do? You're minding your own business. You hear a twig snap behind you. You can't see what made the twig snap, right? But you hear it and it's a discrete event. And so what do you do? You orient and you have to get within plus or minus 15 degrees of it. And then you use your visual system to see what snapped the twig. Is it something I can eat, something that's going to eat me, or something doesn't matter? Right, so it's it's really not that common in a primate like a macaque, who's uh, diurnal and can use its visual system a lot, to really worry that much about what it's listening to. Mm-hmm. An owl monkey might be very different because it's nocturnal, right? So it doesn't see that well, and maybe in that species, these kinds of things would be quite a bit different. Right, right. So then, as an as an um, application domain. Uh, of, of your understanding of adult plasticity in, in auditory auditory processing, you also start to look at the aging brain. Yes. Right? And and how the aging brain actually starts to change its responses to auditory stimuli. So so what are the most remarkable differences you, you found there? Well, I was really surprised when I did those studies that the activity of the brain is so much greater than it is in younger animals because I came in with the completely false assumption that the older animals would have slower brains that would be less active. I thought they would probably be more like uh, anesthetized rat brain as opposed to awake behaving monkey brain, which is very active. And it, Everything makes sense when you're recording from MT in a macaque because the motion goes in a certain direction, the cell screams like crazy, and you don't have to be a neuroscientist to go, I bet it's doing something with the direction of motion, right? <laughs> it's pretty clean. But the old monkeys, they were, they were more active, and they were much more sloppy, right? And the older monkeys that we were studying at the time acted very old. They would sleep a lot. They didn't seem that astute. They didn't seem like they were really perceiving things very well. And I naturally equated that with not much brain activity, right, as opposed to the opposite. So it was really surprising to see that. And when we were doing the studies, we we're uh, double-checking and triple-checking and trying to make sure that we're doing everything right, that we're not messing up with our window discriminators and we're not um, recording a bunch of noise and we're always looking for 60-cycle and all these kinds of things to convince ourselves that, no, the neurons are really firing more. They're just not firing well, right? So you get this loud, sloppy, ugly signal, which I guess the monkeys themselves means they have, you know, weaker percepts, right? And then that's kind of how it all ends up to work. But is it, more, is it more, like, say, a noisy brain? Is there more noise in the brain? Or is it, is it more dynamically modulated? That Also, if you present a stimulus, 
the response is still specifically tuned in time, but it's just much, much amplified. It's more amplified and it's not as specifically tuned in time. So one of the things you you mentioned there was the possibility that uh, there was perhaps selective loss of inhibitory systems, which we we know are important for tuning up the dynamics of perceptual systems so that you get a clean percept. So uh, I think thinking, for instance, of work in uh, RAT S1, uh, Dan Simons, for instance, has talked about the role of of, uh, interneurons in you know, shutting down some of the uh, activity that you will get through the excitatory networks in cortex, and then you have a wave of inhibition coming in to make sure that doesn't get it out of control. So that it sounds quite consistent with a, a network which is 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 got some damage, but it's it's not less activity, as you say. It's just uh, a lack of appropriate tuning of the inhibition systems. Exactly. So I think what's happening in these older animals is their inhibitory network has um, crashed, essentially, right? It's right. not doing as well as it. And it's not just in the cortex. It's in the cochlear nucleus and the spirit olive and inferior colliculus and the medial geniculate. So it's all along the ascending auditory system that there are these problems. And by the time it gets to cortex, it hasn't been very well refined, right? And so it's a, a louder, sloppier system, and it just doesn't get any better at the cortical level. And has anybody lo- looked for sort of selected loss of uh, inhibitory? Uh, Not in the cortex. It's been seen in the brainstem and the, and the midbrain. Right. Donald Casper's group has shown these kinds of things. And there's all kinds of neurochemical changes that happen down there. And it hasn't been studied, certainly not in the macaque uh, auditory cortex. And the inferior colliculus is the place most people stop right. on the way up, right? So the cortex is very complicated and it's got layers and all these kinds of things. So. It hasn't been studied, to my knowledge. And I think, as you also said, that there's an implication of this, which is that if someone's suffering hearing loss, the last thing you want to do is actually shout at them because they're overstimulated anyway. Anyway, so slower and and lower is the way to go, right? And the other key is um, if you have a hard time temporally processing, speech sounds are temporally very complex, and words don't, the way we talk, we don't pause between words. We pause at the stop consonants, right? So if you're stopping at only the stop consonants and you're running words together, right, which we always do, and we, we can interpret that easily enough, it's hard if you can't hear the modulation, right? Yeah. So the key to talking to an older person is not necessarily talking louder. That's not going to really work. But to pause between words, right? And that way they can get each one easily. It's the same thing as when you learn a language and you're not very good at it and then you go to the country and everybody talks really fast, right? Because you're you're doing word, 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 right? And they're pausing at the stop consonants. So all these words run together. Right. Right. right? So it's it's same things happening in the older people. But now if you look at, at these uh, the data you present on um, the response to these older monkey brains versus the younger monkey brains it's actually the latency, the response latency in the older brains seems shorter as well. Very much so. Is that so. correct? Yes, absolutely. So, so, but also the gain is just up in the system. Right. So how about an alternative could be that you say, okay, the cochlea, the cochlea, given also that this is partly a mechanical sensor with the hair cells moving, um, that sort of loses sensitivity. And what the brain now must do in response is just crank up the gain in everything that follows. Right? So then it's not so much that we lose inhibition as uh, due to aging, but we're cranking up the gain because the periphery is less sensitive. Would you buy that? Um, the, that certainly would be a reasonable possibility, but I think the evidence certainly from the rodent suggests that it, um, what's happening is you have less input coming out of the cochlea, and so you adapt to that by doing things that effectively decrease inhibition as opposed to increase the signal specifically. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the evidence is headed towards mm-hmm. at this point. And that's based a lot on uh, neurochemical evidence and the f- changes in the mm-hmm. GAP, GABA, GABAergic neurons. Yeah, but but, but like there are two ways to think about this, right? Because you, you can think about inhibition as gain control. Sure. Because, right? Or you can think about it as sort of sharpening a response that you say, look, I have a bunch of frequencies coming in. I set up some sort of, of winner-take-all among them, so I sharpen 
the the most salient aspect of my input signal. Right. right. See the two different views on how you can think about the inhibition. So do you see it as a sort of a non-specific regulatory adjustment or loss or uh, a more specific one? I prob- If I had to guess, which you're yeah. making me guess. Right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So my guess is that it's a little bit of both, but it's probably 70-30 and 70% is, a, is the sharpening part and the 30% is just kind of a global background okay. that the signal mm-hmm. comes from. And that means, in your opinion, this would not be happening at Cortex. This would be all subcortical. I think that's what's happening subcortical, and I'm really keen to look in the cortex and see what... In the, the cortex is much more well-behaved as far as things like pavarbumin mm-hmm. being in GABAergic neurons and things like that. Mm-hmm. In the brainstem, it doesn't really mm-hmm. do that, right? So it would be keen to look in the cortex and mm-hmm. see, is there, in fact, losses of GABAergic neurons and which kinds, and how would that, how would that work out, right? Because there is a general loss of neurons in the cortex of these animals. Mm-hmm. And another piece of evidence, I think, that speaks to the inhibitory story rather than this amplification story is uh, the sort of oscillation that you've seen uh, where the the firing is high and then it drops and then it comes back high and then drops again. And that suggests some alteration in the cortical dynamics rather than just a a raising of the the gain generally. And that, that... could easily be consistent with loss of uh, inhibitory neurons. So, for instance, you've got fast spiking inhibitory neurons which are coming into the cortex quite soon after the initial excitatory burst. And I mean, people are mm-hmm. suggesting that these are there to, to damp down the response and make sure that the re- neurons that are mm-hmm. responding are the ones which are most finely tuned, which would be very consistent with what you're saying. And if that's lost or that's delayed, then you'd imagine dynamics mm-hmm. could be upset so that you get mm-hmm. these oscillations. Coming. You buy that, Greg? No, that works for me. Okay. That's a, that's a because then reason. I think you're both wrong. Because <laughs> I think if, we'll Tony's, the model. Exactly. <laughs> if Tony's interpretation is, is correct, that would also imply a loss of specificity at the cortical level because I'm, I'm tuning down my inhibition at the cortical level, which means if I have overlaps in my receptive field responses, I lose my ability to filter those out. And as, as, if I look at your data, you don't necessarily look the specificity. The specificity is not necessarily lost in the response. It's just really the amplitude that is strongly affected. So well, I think you're both wrong if you agree with Tony. Well, I would say if you look in CL, it's pretty clear that the specificity is lost because the ah. because the spatial tuning is about. So I'm sunk now. You're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we're both right. <laughs> but there's something else that that now worries me because, okay, here we go. We're getting older. True for all of us. Um, things getting messed up from my cochlea all the way up to my cortex. Um, I'm, 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 I get the responses get strongly amplified. to get much stronger. Um, but in the meantime, you're telling me we have this this sort of continuously plastic cortex. So if I'm pumping in higher amplitude signals, why is the cortex not adjusting to this? It's almost like sewing together two fingers, right? I get I get a stronger drive onto a certain cluster. I have to reorganize my map. So are these maps reorganizing, and are they reorganizing then in a functionally um, related way? Right. So how does how do you put these two things together? How come the old monkey is, doesn't have a plastic brain to adapt to all this? I don't know the answer to that, but I can guess again. And the way I see what happens is uh, you're in your 40s, and your hair cells and your spiral ganglion cells, et cetera, are starting not to work as well as they used to. And so your brainstem and auditory midbrain is beginning to try to adjust to this, and it's adjusting this by messing around with the inhibitory system and your cortex is getting a weird signal and it's being plastic and it's changing and you have no symptoms okay so it mm-hmm. works mm-hmm. it's been working for a while right by the time you're 78 79 years old right there for whatever reason either loss of neurons or loss of the ability to quickly adapt or the fact that you are slowing down quite a bit and you're not re-updating your maps as often as you are is makes it so that that process breaks down. And then you start to do plasticity that's hurting you, right? So what happens when you're a little bit older and you're having a conversation and you keep 
making up parts of the words that you're missing. And then you, your model of the conversation, it goes south. And you ask a really stupid question and you get laughed at, right? Mm-hmm. And how is it as you're older and it's a little bit harder to hear, so you have to, you know, do this. You start to not go into those situations, right? So all of these things that you're normally doing to make sure that your maps are okay and you're, and you're doing all right, you start to self deprive these things. Mm-hmm. And what's that going to do? That's going to drive your maps in a bad direction, mm-hmm. right? So use it or lose it, you know, mm-hmm. is what the, what's been said. So if you start to avoid social situations because you can't hear very well, you're not going to get better at hearing. Sure. Right. Well, that's why I'm training myself to not be bothered by posing stupid questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's inoculation against my hearing, future hearing loss. Right. But th- right. this does also suggest a, a potential way of developing a program to reduce hearing loss is some hearing training that might right. help us preserve our hearing as we get older. So, well, that's right. in some sense what Mike is also doing with his company, Plus well, Science, co- right? Right, so okay. he's doing that. Nina Dronkers in Chicago is doing this with music. Right? Okay. So mm-hmm. if you use motor input and then you, and she's looking at the inferior colliculus, but there's no reason it's not being translated throughout the system, and that will give you the benefit of... Uh, 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 keeping your maps up to date and, and mm-hmm. maintaining that, that standard. So if I listen to music, that's going to help me maintain a good map? Uh, it's better than not listening to music, but not as good as playing music. Oh, even It better. depends on the amplitude. The amplitude? At which you play the music. Well, <laughs> <laughs> if you play it too loud, that's detrimental. You're right, yeah. <laughs> well, we can listen to Tony playing this evening. He knows the whole Beatles songbook okay, by heart. Be too loud. Okay. <laughs> so, but now, so so this is really great that that you also start to touch upon these more applied issues and try to get insight in in how we actually can deal with hearing loss. Um, but on the other hand, um, you could also argue that that the disinhibition we might see with aging might actually also have a positive effect in cognition, we could call it wisdom mm-hmm. in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, if, if people get more disinhi- disinhibited or more disconnected from, let's say, their immediate emotional responses to things, they can exist in a state of pure cognition right. or not. Or fantasy. Or fantasy. <laughs> pure <laughs> delusion. Yeah, exactly. delusion, yeah. yeah. Um, so now, you, you finished up by, by your speculations about the homunculus. Mm-hmm. Right, and we also sort of to, to think a bit about this question. Okay, if we have this dull plasticity, we have some handle on these mechanisms. How would you actually be able to grow a new module in, into a cortex or remove one? Right. right. So, so how how can we do that? How can we add, let's say, a, a radar map to our own cortex? Right. So, um, what got me thinking about that was the difference in the somatosensory cortex between old world and new world monkeys where older monkeys have a clear area two, which is uh, non-cutaneous, and it's between area one, which is cutaneous, and area five, which is visual and and non-cutaneous as well. And new world monkeys don't have that so much, right? So the experiments by Jeff Padberg uh, really opened my eyes that there was a big difference, and it always was curious to me that how would you actually make a new field? Because that's what evolution does. We make new fields, and humans have more than macaques, and the common ancestor had some number less than both of us, right? And so um, the fact that when you train a monkey to, to pay attention or to discriminate a tactile stimulus on their finger and you essentially change the morphology and the functional functionality of an entire cortical area over that representation, area 3A, um, leads me to think that, well, that can happen pretty quickly, right? And so what would it take to get a new cortical field? So if you wanted a new cortical field, you can either change it in, in a lifetime, in, in weeks, but you lose whatever it used to do because your brain doesn't get bigger because it's stuck in the skull, right? So one way that you could do this is you could alter your cort- functional cortical topography by changing your niche, right? And then when you get the opportunity to get a bigger brain, you know, you have that, and then that same kind of process can fill in that space, right? So mm-hmm. it just seems to me that... You don't have to wait 30 million years to hope that your progenitor cells last a little bit longer so that you get a bigger sheet. Then you decide, what am I going to do with it, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can uh, jumpstart that and already have in place something that's new, right? And then when you do get more tissue, you're ready to, to fill it in with that. Mm-hmm. Right? So but that just made sense to me. Okay. But now, isn't the notion of homunculus not overrated to start with? 
like like for instance this very literal almost like a copy of the body in the cortex also you already showed this incredible individual variability right, right. In, in how you organize your somatotopic maps uh, moreover you also within the somatotopic region you might have let's say duplications of such a map you might have sub maps within maps how should we think really about this how how accurate is something like a homunculus well, it depends on how you measure it. So if you're Penfield and Rasmussen and you put your stimulator every 7 or 10 or 12 millimeters across, you get a homunculus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Yeah. If you uh, take a microelectrode and you penetrate every 50 to 75 microns, there's a, it's not super-duper clean, right? The, the map of the hand in the owl monkey is, except that the hairy skin is in all kinds of different weird places and it's, you know, there's overlap and it's, mm-hmm. it looks pretty good. Um, other parts of the body are not so much, right? So when the receptive fields start to get big, like on the, the rump or the leg, that starts to get a little bit sloppy too, right? So um, now to, to finish, finish up the, our, our, our debate here or uh, our conversation, um, so, so you started out to look at this issue of adult plasticity, you were at the beginnings of actually getting this back on the map again, right? Which is great. And um, to travel all the way through, let's say, somatosensory systems, motor systems, auditory systems. So now if if I really want to, to follow in that tradition that in which you have been working, what is Greg's law that we should adhere to, to understand the brain? Greg's law to yeah. understand the brain. Mm-hmm. It's harder than it looks. It must be <laughs> harder than it seems. Yeah, yeah I, well, I think if you want to understand the cerebral cortex, and this is what I've done, so that's why I think it, you should not get stuck in a cortical area. Okay, You should not say, I'm gonna find, I want us to understand how the cerebral cortex um, operates to provide perceptions, and to do that, I'm going to spend 30 years studying MT. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think you're not going to gain the insights that you need unless you look across a bunch of different cortical areas. Right. And, you know, a bunch of different species would probably be pretty smart too. But I'm, I'm not only a cortical snob, I'm a primate snob too. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I've been sticking to the primate. But right. um, one nice thing about being a close colleague of Leah Kribitzer's is that she studies all kinds of different animals. And so I, I know all about these things. And it's something that you can really you can really use to gain your insight. Mm-hmm. So if you're not going to study them yourself, you should at least bone up on the literature and talk to somebody who does right, so they exactly. can they can they can keep you grounded. So embrace yeah. variability would be it. That would be yeah. a good one, yeah. Okay. So then so five years from now Tony likes traveling, he comes visit June Davis, um, and he's gonna test whether you check whether you verify the hypothesis that you're gonna share with us now. So what's the most important hypothesis you wanna see verified in that time frame five years? In a time frame of five years? Yeah. So that's uh, in in the monkey world that's not very much time whatsoever, right? So um, what I would like to see is um, how is it that this proposed parallel pathway with the rostral and the, the caudal what, uh, where and the rostral what pathway, what is that really like? I mean, how is it really doing? My money is that it's not going to be quite as clean as it is in the visual system, but it's going to probably provide us a lot more insights, I hope, anyway, into how not just the visual system but also the sensory system and others, how you actually do the binding of these objects into you know a single mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I'm hopeful that five years from now when Tony comes by, um, I'll be able to tell him almost how it works. Great. Right. Greg and Zone, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomedics and Biohybrid Systems project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening. You're off the hook. All right, well, thank you, guys. That was... Never done that before. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Yeah. Nice. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, It's great. I didn't know you were instructed by Leia to talk about this. Yeah. If Leia wouldn't have given you any instruction, what would you have talked about? (laughs) Um, Probably I would have talked all about the auditory cortex. Okay.
uh-huh. that's all I would have talked about. Right. The, and I would have I, I've done the. Um, we also looked at a whole bunch of different things in the temporal domain. Uh huh. Right. So I would have talked about that. Ah, cool. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. But all cortical. All cortical. Okay. All, what's all the time? What, what's the time window in which cortex can reliably represent interval information on its own? Like how fast can it? No, no. If I give you a beep, uh-huh. let's say, or you have to hold a stimulus in memory for a certain amount of time, what's the time window which cortex can do this reliably in a task? Uh, the time window in which a monkey can reliably do, say, a delayed match to non-sample mm-hmm. or something instance, like yeah. that? Seconds. Seconds. And where, where, where is the information stored? Is it reverberating in the cortical circuit? or? Yeah, that's a question you'd have to ask one of five or six of Mort Michigan's postdocs that couldn't <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> but do you have any yeah. idea? Is it the cerebellum or is it cortex? It would probably have else? to, I think it would probably be in the cerebellum. Uh, so right. it gets to the, the auditory system gets to the thing that I said before. I can hold this in my visual working memory really well, right? But the auditory system doesn't have objects like this that sure. you have to do. And so it's been a real difficult thing for the field to figure out what um, you can reliably remember in memory. So you can train a monkey to listen to a bunch of sounds and when it hears boop, boop, beep, Mm -hmm. to let go. And it can remember that all day and and that'll be held in there forever. But to do the the classic beep, 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 okay, now is it beep, boop, beep, or beep, 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 and it's like, I can't can't remember, Mm -hmm. you know? And and so all all of those, Mort tried for years to do those um, ablation behavior experiments that made him famous in the auditory domain mm-hmm. and just couldn't get the stupid monkeys to... I mean, he right. started those when I was in Mortz's lab. Right. right. Yeah, so you play guitar? Do.